welcome to another episode of Cinema Oblivia, a podcast about old movies and stuff. I am your host, as usual, James Eldred, and we have a transcontinental, transcoastal episode today. Who is on, let's say, the East Coast? Uh, on the East Coast, I believe is me. I'm Alex Navarro from Nextlander. And who is the Twisted Firestarter on the West Coast? <laughs> oh man, Wipeout XL's best song. Uh, this is Shane... <laughs> This is Shane Bettenhausen, and I'm excited to be back on the podcast. I had my first like triple episode, so awesome. Thanks for the invite. Wipeout XL's best song is by is We Are Explosive by Sound of London. That's right. okay. Anyway, and I think I lean that direction too. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about they, let's not talk about fire. Let's talk about Wipeout XL soundtrack. I have it on vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But I wish this wasn't a double feature episode. I wish you had just invited me here for one film. Well, I spoiler, spoiler alert. Well, yes, today we are talking about Firestarter, plural. We will spend, I hope, the majority of the episode talking about 1984's Firestarter, starring Drew Barrymore, directed by Mark Lester, based on the Stephen King novel. But I also wanted to spend a lot of time talking about 2022's Firestarter, um, directed by some asshole. Who's his, what's his name? Um, Keith, uh, Keith Thomas, the second best Keith involved in Firestarter, written by Scott Team, starring people. And Zach say, after you made me watch this, uh, I then found out there's a another made-for-TV sci-fi original <laughs> Firestarter yes, sequel, there is. Firestarter Rekindled. I, I did some reading on that, and I, I threatened to make us all watch that, and you demurred at that, at that threat when I called your bluff on making people watch, watch bad Firestarters. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I haven't... I, I felt bad enough making you all watch Firestarter 2022, you know... Shane, we hang out in real life. Alex, I haven't actually met you. I don't want to, like, yeah. you know, you're not my yeah. actual, well, like, and, real. And per- apparently, it's, yeah. apparently that other one is almost three hours long. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, well, say what you will series. about the 2022 one. It is a lean 90 minutes in yeah. which nothing happens. But, well, like, I, I actually wish it was longer. I feel like, you know, but not that it's, not that, it, that what was there was good, but I feel like they didn't, they didn't do much enough for the characters. Anyway. Another yeah. half hour of Kurtwood Smith, at least, please. Another five uh, minutes. We'll get there. So yeah. anyway, I have talked on this podcast about the remake of Firestarter. I, I previously mentioned that it is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. It is in my current on my on cinema on a letterbox. It is in my bottom top bo- bottom ten of all time. God damn! Wow. I mean, I didn't include like non movies in it. Like like I watched L.A. AIDS Jabber this this month. Which oh is... whoa! <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't I haven't listened to that episode yet. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not doing an episode on L.A. AIDS. Jabba, okay, don't worry. good. Okay, okay. I thought maybe that had come out recently. No, but was, that's like a shot worried. on videotape bullshit. No, like in terms okay. of like real movies, like made yeah. by people who yeah. know how to make a movie. Kind money of money went into it in some degree. Yes, yeah. yes. You know, it's 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 one of the worst. It's right up there with like that last Predator movie, as like. Well, oh, I, I feel like this was option, and like they were gonna make it, and the COVID, like COVID was just starting. And they're like, we have to finish this. They just like threw something together. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, it has a weird history. We'll get to that remake in a minute. But before we get to the remake and all that stuff, Firestarter 1984. Uh, what are y'all histories with that, Alex? I mean, you said I saw you saw on Twitter. You haven't seen it in thirty years. <laughs> it's it's something like that. I mean, I was definitely a kid when I saw that movie, and I have don't I, I've maybe caught little bits and pieces of it on TV in the ensuing years, but I have not sat down to watch it since I was at the absolute oldest, like thirteen years old. Um, Did you yeah. go ahead? I'm sorry. No, I was just I was going to say it's 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 a movie that I remember pretty vividly. Mostly for the end, um, <laughs> it, it is it is that 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 ten minutes of 
the wildest fucking fireballs on wires special effects shit uh, that anyone tried in that era. And I remember, you know, just a lot of Drew Barrymore dead face, just like burning people alive. And that was a fond memory, I will say. Yeah. I, I remembered it relatively with, with, with relatively fond feelings. Sitting down to watch the whole thing again as an adult, uh, and, and many years later adult, I think this movie has something going for it. There is a flavor to it, mm-hmm. and there is a vibe to it that it is not wholly successful at realizing, but it is trying for some shit that feels pretty cool. For especially for like 1984 Stephen King adaptations and generally how that how the adaptations of King stuff in the 80s tend to go. Yeah, we'll get to that too because I want, I want to talk about that. But what, what about you, Shane? Well, so uh, I didn't start reading Stephen King until 1986 when I was 10. So when this came out, I was scared of I was scared of it. And I remember seeing either, either the trailer, probably the TV commercial, which was very short, but like seeing the part where she burns her mom's, you know, uh, oven mitts, like terrified me. And like, I got that the idea was like, Oh, this little girl's accidentally like setting her mom on fire. And that like freaked me out. Uh, so I don't think I saw it until, you know, I was on VHS probably about, you know, late eighties. And for me, it's like mid tier eighties, Stephen King adaptation, not as good, obviously as like, you know, the shining or Carrie, or even, I, I think I even prefer like silver bullet and Christine, but it is good. It's a little slow, but I do like it. Um, yeah, overall, pretty good. And like watching it again, you know, 30 years later, I think I liked it more. I mean, it has some issues with representation, uh, mm. obviously, but I think overall it's fun and the score is a banger. So um, <laughs> thumbs up for me. The thing I will give it on the representation side, which, yes, it is a pretty glaring, gigantic issue. <laughs> They, yeah. There is a gusto to which to the way they oh, try yeah. to fuck up that representation yes. that I think is almost singular in the way they go for it. Yeah. yeah. And, and really quickly, yeah, so like people, people don't know, George C. Scott plays an indigenous person. But like I didn't realize he played an indigenous person until I saw this movie like five years ago. As a, <laughs> as a kid, I just thought he had like a weird nickname. I just thought he had like a weird Southwestern fetish because I've seen plenty of like older white guys in New Mexico yeah. who dress more or less like so that. Just an old dude yeah. who really likes a serape, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, I will say they did fix that casting in the new film, but then they took all of these weird turns with that character that oh, aren't man. fully justified oh, and explained. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, yeah we'll get there. Uh, we'll uh, get there. My history with this, this was definitely one that my dad let, let me watch when I was five. Um, <laughs> okay. Nice. Yeah, we've we've a recurring theme on this podcast. Um, thank you, Dad. And it might be the first Stephen King movie I saw. Oh, uh, probably that or Silver Bullet. Had you had you seen ET? So did you know her from ET? I didn't make that connection. I was. Oh, wow. I am younger than you. I was like I was literally five when this came out. Um. So and I saw it when it came out, and I probably had only saw E.T. once, and I remember E.T. was the first movie I saw in the theater, and when the guys came into the house with the, with the suits, I cried and hid my head. Oh, E.T. In, e. in the theater when I was uh, five or six, whatever, was also a very formative, scary, yet sh- yeah. like exciting, weird experience. Like I loved it, but I was terrified by it and had nightmares for days. Um, also, I, like, E.T. was like... Per, like Hyped up way before it came out. I had ET merchandise. I was like primed to love ET, and then I, and then I was scared of it. It was a weird was like, feeling as a child to be like hyped for like, something with, with merchandise. <laughs> but anyway. I I saw this when it came out. I I remember watching it in my dad's apartment. So we watched it when when my parents were divorced the first time. That's a whole thing. And um, 
I remember the I remember I I remember watching the ending in his apartment. Like I, I remember watching that the most. Did you did you relate to Char- to Charlie being like alone with your dad on on the run? On the run? <laughs> <laughs> yes, my dad. My my dad could push people. Um in different ways uh but and so i think i didn't really get there that stephen king or whatever in the 90s it was on tv a lot with like silver bullet and you know christine and to a lesser extent cat's eye and i feel like those are the first pieces of stephen king media i really fell in love with was a lot of the 80s movie adaptation of stephen king and i realized a lot of those are not great Oh, um, I love I love Cat's Eye. Some of them are. Yeah, some of them are. I love Cat's Eye. I love Silver Bullet. Absolutely love that movie. Get, if I told you Silver season. Bullet is one of the only ones I've never seen, would you be mad? No, you know, no. I, I don't get mad at people's, um, you know, gaps in their Blind movies. Spots. Yeah, if you but but you want to see some peak Busey. I do. Yeah. And early and early Corey, right? And and early Corey Haim and Terry O'Quinn and Lawrence Tierney. Okay, that's a cast. It's a great fucking movie. It's and, it ha- okay. and it's you know, it's it's well made. Uh it's um the director didn't I don't really know what else he did. He did like Mammy Vice and stuff, a guy named uh Dan Adius, I think. But not not you know, not not a like a super stylish film, not a particularly like well made artistic film, but it's a good werewolf movie in a decade that had a lot of good werewolf movies. Okay. Um, I'll look that yeah. one up. Yeah. So I, I recommend it. I love cat's eye the most, but I revisited this off and on, you know, throughout my life. And then for some reason, say in the past, like since like 2016, I thought, man, you know why Firestart is so good? A bunch of old bastards in bad suits burn alive and die slowly. And that's correct. That's, that's satisfying. Yes. So, no, like, like you said, Alex, the ending, no matter what you think of this movie, good, bad, great, whatever, if you want to see a bunch of people who really deserve to die in pain on fire, die in pain on fire, this is your movie. Oh, yeah. It is so much buildup to that ending. And mm-hmm. like... You know, I had, like I said, pretty vivid memories of it. But even like sitting down watching it this time, I was like, is this all worth it to get there? And, you know, when we got there, I think it kind of is. It's so good. I would agree. Like like the practical, the practical effects in the finale and just like the scope of it and, you know, the music, everything. It really does. It's the payoff you want. And that's exactly what's missing at the finale of the new film. And it makes you even appreciate the finale of the original film so much more. It's it's the thing that's missing from a lot of like modern filmmaking in general. Like there are genuinely like inventive pyrotechnics that are going on in this. We used to burn things in this country. Oh, man. We don't burn things anymore. And the the director of this is uh, Mark Lester, Mark L. Lester. He did say in interviews this was the most difficult shoot of his career. I could see it. It's like because some of the stuff they're doing with that fire. Like you have to be very precise about what they pull off. Yeah, and it took me. I didn't know how they even did it until I was researching this episode because a lot of the fire effects still look amazing, yeah. and especially those fireballs, which apparently are pieces of style, uh, are miniature rockets covered in styrofoam and just lit, lit, this, oh. they just lit, lit them on fire. They look, they look spectacular. I actually rewound it. I was like, that, that, that effect is amazing. Yeah. Like, yeah. You can yeah. see the wire in a couple of places, yeah. but other than that, you know, like it is genuinely really interesting, inventive stuff. Yeah. Fireballs and dudes on trampolines on fire. Yeah. 
just good and like they built they built special fi- special new fire suits that they, I guess they still kind of use and you could be on fire for 90 seconds like and they had special rebreathers, like so. Like when the guys have wearing, they built these special fire suits, so people in this in wearing regular looking suits could be lit on fire, you know. Um, yeah, and of course they had that gel, that 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 magical gel that right. you can use to light people on fire. But before I want the production of this is really fascinating because before Mark Lester got involved, this movie went through the ringer. Um, Dodi Fayed, <laughs> um, may he rest in peace. That's the you know who was yeah yeah, yeah yeah he bought the rights to this before the book came out and interesting yeah and that didn't work out the rights ended up to universal then universal was going to make it with john carpenter yes um, i did know that part with a script by bill lancaster who all who wrote the thing and they even the the film was budgeted they were doing location suiting all this stuff location scouting and then the thing came out, and hey, nobody saw it. And um, they were like, no. And then so De Laurentiis got more involved as a producer, took got the rights exclusively, Universal distributed it, and then they got Mark Lester. And, well, and, and apparently yeah. that first script Stephen King really liked and was more of a departure from what we see here. And then like Dino didn't like it. And you know the final script, Stephen King not as big of a fan of. Yeah, well, final everything, yeah. Stephen King not as big of a fan. But... This was directed by Mark Lester, who I previously talked about on this podcast of talking about Class of 1984. Yes. Have you seen that, uh, Alex? I have. It's been a long time, but I remember liking that movie a lot. That's a gooder. And then, of course, I think his most famous film is Commando. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Now that's a gooder right there. (laughs) Um, Peak peak Dan Reichardt cinema Commando. Um, Absolutely. How about you, Shane? You've seen that, right? Oh, of course, as a, as a youth, it was, it was like one of the first R rated movies I ever saw. I think. Yeah, I think probably me too. Well, I don't know. My dad was terrible at that, but yeah. Um, but he also made some other good stuff. I, I really want to shout out really quick: Truck Stop Women. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's good. <laughs> that's a good movie. Uh, okay, that has Uncle that has Uncle Leo in it. Um, from Uncle Seinfeld. Leo. Uncle Leo, yes, and um, Bobby Joe and the Outlaw, um, with Linda Carter. Um, for people who might care, Linda caught a nude, and um, yeah. <laughs> and Bobby and uh, Marjo Gortner, not nude. Um, okay, yeah, that's that's a good one. I have. I really want to see. He made a movie called Steel Arena, which is like like basically like a stuntman. He made two movies that are stunts. He made one called Steel Arena and one just called Stunts. Um, that I haven't seen. I want to see those. But since the eighties, he started his own production company, and he kind of just makes straight, straight to video crap. He made. He did make Showdown in Little Tokyo, which I have. Oh, it's the Brandon Lee movie. Yes, which I haven't seen what people okay. like. Um, it's all I know okay. about that. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. What, no, I would say it's okay. Like it's. I mean, there's not obviously not a lot of Brandon Lee filmography to pluck from. But unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. But I mean, it's it's not. He's good in it. He's fun in it. It's it's just it's that caliber of action movie that you would think it is. All I know about that movie, we watched a clip of it in one of my sociology classes because there's a scene in that movie where, D- D- where Brandon Lee says, before we die, I just want you to let you know you have the biggest penis I've ever seen. <laughs> I for- Yes, he does, in fact, say and, that. And and my, my professor was like, and here's a problem with Asian representation in the media. So um, <laughs> I don't know why he picked that movie um, and not, I don't know, Brothers Tiffany's. But anyway, um. Mark Lester's last movie was 2014's The Nutcracker Massacre. 
That's not a movie. That's, that's you can't just say things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I he's still working, but okay. I don't know. And the writer of this is a guy named Stanley Mann. He he wrote the, a movie called The Collector in 1966 that was nominated for Best Screenplay. Whoa. Um, and he wrote Damien Omen 2. Not not a great screenplay. No. Not um, as much. Meteor. <laughs> I think that's Sean Connery. Uh, Circle of Blood, Circle of Iron, which was based on an idea by Brandon Lee. And my favorite credit of his is Theater of Blood, which is a great movie. With, with Oh, uh, yeah. With, but he has the idea credit. Oh, and, okay, so he conceptualized a thing, and then they bebop their way into that movie. Yes, and they're like, what if okay. Vincent Price killed people based on, you know, Hamlet? Uh, that's a great movie. That's It is. It's a very good one. And he also wrote Conan the Destroyer, which is not a great movie. Um, no, but one I have a weird amount of affection for, despite the fact that it is a fairly bad movie. I just, I, it's hard for me to hate a movie that has Grace Jones and Wizards. And Walt Chamberlain, right? Yeah. Not as much of him as you might like, but Grace Jones is so good in that. one of the reasons I got back into this movie is because the soundtrack's by Tangerine Dream. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. It I is. Mean, but the th- yeah. it, They're so reliable at that stuff. It does not matter what kind of movie you ask them to do. They find a way to just insert themselves in in a way that, like, fits. And, like, it. the whole time I'm just like, yeah, this movie did need a Tangerine Dream soundtrack. <laughs> I never would have thought of that. Most movies do. Yeah. You know, but, but- between this and Sorcerer, like two of the best. It's so good. I, I, oh, I have a yeah. hundred. According to my my media library, I have a hundred and three dream albums. There's a very really good prolific. episode. Uh, there's a very good episode <laughs> of your sadly currently defunct podcast about that. Yes, we talk about if you have, if you want to know more about my opinions of Tangerine Dream. Spoiler: They're good. Um, I learned a lot from this podcast. Yeah, uh, an episode of Alex and his Right Time Band. Uh, me and Elliot go in detail about them. But this is. This is a good score by them. It's not my favorite. I mean, the Sorcerer is like eight here, but their score to a movie you've never heard of called Flashpoint um, with Treat Williams and Chris Christopherson. Um, that's very good. Their score to Thief is amazing. Yep. Um, and their scores to Neo Dark and Miracle Mile are just top of the line. And um, I hope their hope their royalties from GTA Five are like in the zillions or something. You know, like come on, right? <laughs> Yeah, if you yeah, that's a good score too. I mean, they're still going without a Gafrosa, which is a whole big thing. But uh, I really feel like their score adds a lot to the finale of this. It does, and the other okay. So you can tell me if you think this is a more direct connection or not. But in watching this and realizing, oh right, there's a hella t- Tangerine Dream score to this movie, <laughs> and also in watching it, I was like, obviously. Stranger Things, to some degree, is pulling from a lot of different King, but it it feels like this is the King that it is most fixated on. Mm, And I'm Mm -hmm. now thinking about the soundtrack in Stranger Things, and I'm like, is this the thing they are specifically trying to reference in that theme? It's not exact, but it feels like it feels like Firestarter looms extremely large over that. Oh show. yeah, I mean the shop is basically like forty percent of Stranger Things, right? Yeah, yeah, and the the shops and other Stephen King stories. 
but I feel yeah. like the shop is most prevalent in Firestarter because you actually go to the shop, yeah, uh, and it blows up. Um, and you have a child with you know latent psychic powers who's a little girl, yeah, and like right. yeah. yeah, and they're doing they're doing tests on her, yeah. It's basically yeah, eleven it's never is. rocks, eleven never rocks a two thirds Canadian tuxedo, like no, um, like like Drew Barrymore is, but yeah, it's it is. I mean, they have said as much. Like they're not hiding yes. it. They, 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 they're, they're, they're honest about Firestarter was a huge influence on them. What's you know, I do feel like for people of our age, I think p- kids like people who were kids when this came out probably like it more than people who saw it when it came out who were adults. I would agree with that absolutely. Yeah, and it might be nostalgia or whatever, but like nobody like my dad hated this movie. And he's a, he was a huge Stephen King fan. Massive. Yeah. And I feel like it kind of felt, it kind of, they didn't pick up on it, but then in on, on TV and cable and reruns, our generation kind of latched onto it a lot more. Yeah. Weirdly, weirdly, I think it does kind of play well to kids, despite it being a little slow. But yeah, like it's, it's interesting as from 80 Stephen King stuff, it definitely is not as horror and it's more kind of like sci-fi family, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. 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 When I was a kid, though, like the scenes of the guy begging for his life and then being lit on fire kind of disturbed me, <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, I mean, it's 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 merciless in a way that children's entertainment probably should not be. But at the same time, you know, stories of kids having wild powers and basically, you know, being able to do whatever they want to the adults that have wronged them, I think, is inherently a thing that, like, especially kids of our generation very much latched on to. And yeah. there were a lot of Stephen King books and uh, movies in the eighties that were that had kids in large roles. I yeah, mean, right. there's it, Silver Bullet, Cat's Eye, Firestarter. I mean, to a lesser extent, Cujo and um, The Shining, of course, Stand by Me, Maximum Overdrive, Children of the Corn. Like, but but what's interesting, I I find like the the protagonist being so young in this film, she really is quite young. Yet, you know, obviously Drew Barrymore pulls it off. But like, I, I, while while we were watching this, I was like, wow, like. You know, she really is young to be the protagonist, and they age her up in the new one, and I don't think it's successful. It doesn't really, it yeah. doesn't add much. You know, no, yeah, no. I think it works better when it's when the the Drew Barrymore was so young in this that her character is still like has that childhood optimism, right? Yeah, you know, and naivety and the moodiness. The one I think, yeah. and like sort of like the moodiness and sort of like unpredictability of her behavior, I feel like fits a lot more for a character of that age. Completely, yeah, yeah, yeah. The other one just doesn't work as much, and like in the, in the new one, like a kid that age would not be saying "mommy" and "daddy." I don't think. No, right. and like towards the end of this film, as like Rainbird is trying to like ingratiate, ingratiate himself and stuff, like it's it's you know it's believable that because she is naive and like you know you, 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 I, I bought it and like you know I was excited to get a ColecoVision just like you know little Charlie. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, I didn't burn anybody down afterwards either. But really quick behind the scenes, it's funny. The producer Frank Capra Jr., which I think is just funny, you know, the son yeah, of he really, he really is the son of Frank Capra, right? Yeah, yeah. that's what's hilarious. Yeah. And his his son works in Hollywood too, but in a, in a low, lower capacity. And this is one of many Dino De Laurentiis, uh Stephen King films with his later wife, Martha De Laurentiis, Martha Schumacher, later Martha De Laurentiis, um, who has a credit on the new one, despite the fact that I think she was dead. Huh. Um, yeah. Funny that. Um, yes. Dino De Laurentiis and her produced several Stephen King films. They produced this, Dead Zone, Fields of Bullet, Cat's Eye, Maximum Drive, and then later... The TV movie, sometimes they come back. Uh, 
And of course, they also produced, you know, King Kong Lives, which I, I, right. I just like mentioning. And also, and you know, four hundred other movies. Dude, <laughs> right. Yeah, Dude. Dino, Dino put in work. Dino put in work. But I feel the main like we're talking a lot about the the Drew Barrymore already. Like she is the star of this movie. Um, yes, she wasn't top billed because movies are stupid, but she is a star of this movie. Yeah, I mean it's not David Keith. I can tell you that. <laughs> or yeah, it like he's. He's fine. I like David Keith is an actor that I don't have any particular dislike of, but I feel like this is the most I've ever seen him do in anything. Yeah. And he's fine. Well, first he's the second best actor with the with the names David and Keith in his name. <laughs> yes. He's very good in Officer and Gentleman. Um, if you haven't seen that. He is fantastic in that movie. Um, I did see that movie, but it's been decades, and I don't yeah. even remember him in it. But I, 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 mean, I, I kind of remember that being Richard Gere. But you're right; it's him. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I go. Hey, out of all of you, I go to that movie more for Richard Gere. Trust me. But <laughs> sure, um, <laughs> you know, but he's very good in that movie, and I think that kind of gave him a few years of like star potential. Was he kind of squandered in this movie? S- S- Stephen King said he had stupid eyes. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is harsh. Doesn't um, King, wait, didn't Stephen King also describe this entire film as, quote, cafeteria mashed potatoes? Yeah, yeah. Of all the critics of this film, Stephen King's in the top five, definitely. I, I kind of like I like kind of like cafeteria mashed potatoes. You know, they're they okay. can be fine. They can be, be perfectly fine. nourishing. Yeah. Um, but David Keith also also directed The Curse with, with Will Wheaton. Weird. I did not yeah. know that. Really? Yeah. yeah. Who knew? I did. Um, but yeah, he, I think he's good in this. Drew Barrymore steals the show. You know, this is kind of peak Barrymore, early Barrymore. This is her first movie after E.T. This and Irreconcilable Differences came out the same year. And then Cat's Eye came out the following year. And then Drew Barrymore had problems. And mm, yes. the well-documented problems. Which started during the rat party for this movie. Mm. Mm, that's uh, so sad. Sad. People, yeah, people, people gave her a drink during the rat party for Firestarter. And God. yeah. She was Look, drinking by age nine, smoking weed by ten, doing coke by twelve. Um, and as then, fucked up as all that shit is, I feel like we can look back on it with like a little bit, but slightly less weight because we know that she has gotten right in her life in the ensuing years. It was just yeah, a she, ra- It was a rough period. Yeah, yeah she's got like and, a hit hit talk show that the moms across America are loving. Yeah, she seems happy. If you want to see a clip of her meeting the girl from Fire Starter twenty twenty two, and then both just crying nonstop for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> very adorable um but yeah i i i think she took time off pretty much i think I, cat's eye was her last real big movie until poison ivy which is a great movie um and but yeah she, she was fantastic in this uh, david keith is you know is david keith um heather locklear is here for five minutes i know i wish i wish there was more heather locklear um and i, I randomly I randomly saw Heather Locklear on the Drew Barrymore show like a year and a half ago, and Drew Barrymore like and her totally reminisced about making fire starters. So that was kind of rad. I lit you yeah. on fire. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then there's uh, Martin Sheen is here. Oh, he's chewing up. He's chewing it up the scenery. But you know what? I, I enjoyed it because compared to what we get in the, in the remake, it's like a nothing burger, right? Like, yeah, like, oh, I, yeah. I, I enjoy how much he he, he kind of knows the movie he's in and he brings a little more, like, you know, animus to it. 
Yeah, there's a good sliminess to to his whole thing. Like he he is chewing it up, but I mean, he also recognizes that he's in the room with fucking you know eye patch George C. Scott, so <laughs> he has to modulate it a little bit so he's not just trying to out chew that guy. Uh, yes, before before we get to George C. Scott, I did want to mention really quick with with Martin Sheen, his hair. Oh yeah, is that is like a perfect? What do you call that? A quaff? Whatever that's called. Yeah, like it's a helmet. Like it's perfectly I'm, shaped. Perfect. It's like like oh, I was jealous. But the thing you uh, can say about the, the Sheen slash Estevez men is that the hair gene is strong. Yes. They're all about that hair. Um, but as great as his hair is, it is upstaged by George C. Scott. Um I don't know what the fuck he's doing in this movie. <laughs> he's hap like, okay. This ver- like there is an alternate timeline where George C. Scott became the Marlon Brando style eccentric that we all know, uh, because it feels like that's what he's doing here. He is just luxuriating in getting to do whatever the fuck he wants because seemingly no one will tell him not to. And like it is borderline like Island of Dr. Moreau level. What are you doing here? Like, how was he cast? How was he ever cast here? It's so it's so strange. Like, I don't consider he's like a badass. Like, George, like I don't buy it. Like, it's it's bizarre. It's a bizarre casting to me. I like that one of his first lines is somebody asking how was Venice, and he says sinking. <laughs> like, I feel like that just kind of get lets you that that character where that character's headspace is. But like, George C. Scott is a was a weird guy. Like, remember he yeah. he he won an Academy Award and refused to accept it because he he didn't like to compete with actors. Um, and in the eighties, his filmography is bizarre. This came out the same year as his version of Christmas Kill, which is great. Um, and he played Mussolini the next year. <laughs> so he, he was in the eighties. He played Fagin from Oliver Twist, Ebenezer Scrooge, and Mussolini. Wow. And the guy from that Exorcist sequel. Oh, yes, the 90s, but yes. Um, oh, was that the 90s? I thought that was late. Okay, you, may, you, I mean, you would probably know. Okay, 1990. But it's right on the edge. It's about made in the 80s. Um, and, of course, Taps. And then later on, Angus. Good movie. Oh, yeah, Angus. Oh, yeah, Angus. <laughs> but, That's a name I haven't heard in some time. <laughs> I want to show my boyfriend Angus, but I know he'll cry. But anyway... Um, I, I really like I I yes he's playing a Native American character and that's bad but I still love his performance like I also it, feel like they go really far out of their way to never mention that <laughs> that he's Native yeah if if you wouldn't know other than his name there's really yeah. nothing that really and I don't think he doesn't he's well, not he, putting he in, is he's styled he's styled in such a way to, yes, to appear the ponytail yeah. the denim the the jacket like all that stuff. Yeah, it's a look, but his like name, you said, Alex, name, there, are, there are white Rain, dudes who rock that look. His yeah. name, Rainbird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. And they don't really play into like any like bullshit, fake uh, native mysticism or anything, really. Uh, he has that weird obsession with her, but that doesn't really come off that way. It comes off more creepy than anything else. Yes. Yeah. So I guess it's not terrible. It is bad, but... Like I said, I didn't even know he was supposed to be a native native person until I watched it like ten years ago. So they kind of bury it. Um, oh, so in, in the uh, bad sci-fi uh, sequel, Rainbird is played by Malcolm McDowell. By the way, 
that's that's not any better. That's not any no, better. But no. that's the type. Okay, if you are looking for a George C. Scott in the mid aughts era, like that is probably who I would go to for my George C. Scott performance. That was O two. That has yeah. That and that also had Dennis Hopper. Yeah, one of his last performances is all very sad. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, Malcolm McDowell's yeah. Rainbird, Dennis Hopper is somebody else. And it also has uh, Deborah, Va- Deborah Van Valkenburg in it from Ooh. Streets of Fire. Oh, no oh. shit. Maybe next year we'll have to do it. I'll come back no, for re- re- we'll, we'll rekindle. Well, you know, I'm going to be in the hospital next week and I'll have nothing to do for like three days. So maybe I'll just uh, put on, I'll get, hook up my VPN and watch Firestarter because I hate myself. Hook um, up the painkillers pain before you start it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, I have stories about movies on on, on Nopius, but that's an, 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 another podcast. Um, really quick, Art Carney's here. I love Art Carney. It's good. I, I enjoy these scenes in the farmhouse, and uh, like the in the new one, it's it's bad. Yeah, and it made me it made me enjoy these better. It's like these are really good. Yeah, these and, moments and, in the fire. And Alex, you've seen Louise Fletcher twice this month. I have, and I, these are like the worst Louise Fletcher kinds of performances. Like, I, I, I like her as an actress, and I think when she's utilized the right way, she's incredibly menacing. But when you give her these really milk toast kind of roles, like, she is maybe the single most boring lady to get for that kind of stuff. And here she has nothing to do. And in Virtuosity, she's even more <laughs> wasted. Like, she doesn't even get, like, a little bit of, like, a scenery-chewing police commissioner thing. She's just bored the whole That's, time. Okay, that makes me sick. I saw Virtuosity on, on her filmography. I was like, oh, what, weird. I've never, I've never seen that film, and I assumed it was her performance would be something interesting, <laughs> so... Like, her sad. scene partner in most of that movie is William Fickner, and you'd think, okay, these are some oddballs. They can do something. But apparently, like, 80% of their scenes got cut, so there's just nothing there. Yeah, for those who don't know, you can listen to Alex talk about virtuosity in detail on the next last uh, Watchcast. Yes. Um, yes. I haven't listened to that one yet. I'm, I'm still to listen to it. I think I told you on Twitter, my dad's best friend was the director's high school English teacher. <laughs> yeah, that movie <laughs> is really something, man. <laughs> I own the soundtrack on vinyl. It has that dope uh, Missing the Fast Fatima song on it, and I think it will yeah. be a good, a good Tracy Lord song. So yeah, it's got a good Tracy Lord song. It's got that incredible Peter Gabriel "I'm the Party Man" song. Like, yeah, it's, it's something. <laughs> yes, the one piece of Quick casting question. in this. Should, should I should I watch Louise Fletcher's titular uh, role as Mama Dracula? I want that's... to. I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> I haven't seen that either. <laughs> She's amazing in Flowers in the Attic. Yes, um, yes, she is. Yes, she's great in that movie, uh, and I do want to see Invaders from Mars. So maybe you know, I have I have the la- I have the Japanese laser disc of lasers from of Invaders from Mars on my wall, because the Japanese name of the remake of Invaders from Mars is just fucking Space Invaders. <laughs> of course, it is. To <laughs> be illegal, that's branding, um, baby. Branding. But I have one quick question before we get into into more of the movie. What the fuck is Antonio Fargas doing here for one minute? He's he's the taxi driver. Wait, uh, really? Oh, that's Huggy Bear. God, that uh, is Huggy. Jesus, I knew I, I recognized did, that guy from uh, somewhere. I could not figure out where it was. Tiny cameo, weird. Yeah, and like he was a not a huge actor, but he was you know he was in Car Wash. He was in, uh, I think he, he was in uh, Cleopatra Jones. Um, I think he was in Shaft. Like he was a you know pretty big supporting actor. He has one scene in this, but he has such a look. Like my boyfriend recognized him from his eyes in the rearview mirror. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the number of people who have like meaningful speaking roles in this movie is not very high. So maybe they just paid a good rate for, you know, a single day of work. You know, he's reliable, I guess. Yeah. But it's just strange. I, I love Antonio Fargas. Um, so anytime I'll see him, because he he's in he's in uh, Car Wash, and yeah, playing one of the best uh, LGBT characters of all time in history of cinema. So like, he always hashtag respect forever. But it's just what a weird like kind of hey, it's him and Moses Gunn too. Moses Gunn's here for like a minute, and he was in a few good. He was in Wallaball. Um, he was in, also in Shaft. Um. He's in a movie I watched last week called A Certain Fury with Irene Cara and Tatum O'Neill on the run as fugitives. <laughs> Whoa. Um, it was bad. Don't watch it. And I feel like this movie is well made, but I think the criticism at the time was that it was it was just kind of milk toast. It's kind of by the numbers. But um, yeah, yeah, it's like it feels like it's struggling against its budget, and most of that budget goes toward the end. So they just kind of have to mill around for you know the 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 previous ninety minutes before they can kind of get to the thing you all paid for your ticket. Yeah, and. But like I think they squeeze enough out of that stuff to make it interesting. But as I was watching it, I could not shake the feeling that like the ideal version of this story is actually just an incredible Hulk style TV series where they <laughs> go from town to town and they set a new person on fire every week. I can like, see it. This week Ernest Borgnine gets immolated. Man, who would have first it gets eaten by rats and willed and then this? Um Yeah. Yeah. I would I would love to hear the minor key sad version. Of of the fire starter theme because like the walking away music and you know and oh yeah, uh, yeah 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 but I think one thing that both this version and the remake have in common that's a negative is that they both really don't know how to start no because this one kind of starts like what, what do you call it in media res it's like this goes like yes in the middle of it and they're on the run and they're trying to get to an airport or whatever and you get flashbacks. Like, ideally, you would probably just lead with the experiment, right? Because I, I, I think that's, like, that's the thing that establishes everything. And it's, like, where they where they choose to jump you in is a little jarring. But I do feel like the, the way the original film handles the experiment in the flashback is more effective than the way it's handled in the new one. Much know? more, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, but I, the experiment scene is creepy as fuck. It is. It has that feeling of, like... You know, again, they can't quite depict, like, the real horror of what is happening there. But, like, it's enough of it is implied. And there's, like, I think they actually do an okay job of making you believe that Heather Locklear would ever fall for a dope like David Keith. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll say, you know, the, the, first, the, <laughs> first, the first hour of this film is, actually, the whole film is fairly faithful to the book. It's been a long time since I read it. But, like, a lot of this is, you know, a lot of that kind of slow burn is there in the in the original source material, too, of the first you know, the first half of the story. Yes. But through the flashbacks, like, in case people haven't seen this, we're going to spoil it now. So, spoil it. Yeah. But you, you see that, you know, um, Andy and Vicky 
that, that's uh, D- David Keith and uh, I always have to make sure that I don't say Keith David. David Keith and Heather Lockley are college students. They experiment to be given some drug. Everybody else goes crazy from it. Like in this scene, a guy gouges his eyes out. People are pulling. And, you know, and this is kind of nasty. like an oblique, oblique reference, like an MK Ultra stuff. You know. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And how the the like Stephen King got the idea from the fact that the CIA was giving people acid. That was right. like the the two impetuses for this film were that the two like inspirations for the book were that and the idea he thought that his daughter was moody and it's a good thing he can't kill him. <laughs> so that was kind of the inspiration. God damn, for Steve. Well, he like he he said it wasn't like a one to one, but like he he had the idea in his head. It's like it's like it's a good thing his kid doesn't like carry or something because you know little yeah. kids are moody. And what if what if a little kid had the power to destroy the world? Type thing, and so it kind of goes from there. People said it was kind of similar to Carrie, but I think it's different because, like, you know, her, her parents love her. <laughs> well, yeah, and it, it like it doesn't have any of those like weird religious overtones that Carrie had. Like, yeah. this is very much like government paranoia shit, and very much like the you know the sort of like deep mistrust of any sort of like government science program. And I think yeah. that aspect is a little bit like that. That's the thing that really kind of differentiates it. Yeah. And I feel like this movie does a really good job of slowly developing what to the audience, her power. Yeah. Because the first time you see it, like it's in the airport, right? Mm-hmm. The, she lights that dude's boots on fire. Yes. The, the guy who is berating his, you know, pregnant girlfriend for no particularly good reason. Other than he seems like a real shit heel. Yeah, and then is this then is then is a fire heel, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then from there they'll go they go on the road they get picked up they hitchhike they go to this old farmhouse they meet well and uh, and, and you kind of gloss over Andy's powers like oh yeah yeah what well, is what I is Andy's like power? Well, he can kind of will people into into doing things, you yeah. know. Um, but it, you know, it's it's fairly well defined, and I feel like he his and Charlie's powers are fairly well defined in in this film, whereas like in the new film everything's a little more vague as to like what their powers are you know? it's yeah. much muddier yeah. yeah well this movie's kind of vague on her power because sometimes she's psychic well she she has like premonitions but she doesn't she can't like command people to do things the way her father can but she has she has premonitions but she can't tell that john like dorothy scott's evil right like that's not part of a premonition um it's it's she has premonitions when the script needs her to yes <laughs> i feel like at the farmhouse yeah and she sees the family coming, the bad guys coming, and I feel this is when the movie pops off. Right. Yeah. This is this is kind of the beginning of like the real action. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I kind of enjoy that that slow burn. It's very eighties, almost seventies in a way. You know, like oh yeah, to, to, like pol- part of my poltergeist so good is it takes forty five minutes for everything to happen. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it has a slow burn. So it's a slow burn than a fast burn because yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. What happened? Yeah, Alex, go ahead at the at the, at the farmhouse. Well, no, I was going to say, yes, it is. It is a fast burn. Like once once things pick up, like things really pick up. It just takes a while to get there. Yes. But once they pick up, motherfuckers burn. Um, yeah. I, I I love the farmhouse scene. Yeah. Uh, like it's really Art Carney. I feel like his vibe <laughs> in this scene is like he's a little bit of a dope, but like there's a real kindly grandfatherly thing happening there that I feel like Louise Fletcher never fully dials into. Uh, and like the little, like the realization they have at the kitchen table where he kind of realizes like, okay, yeah, this guy's bullshitting me. Like it's, 
it's well like it it like I feel like he plays it really well and like it that scene works mostly because our Carney really is he he's making you believably sympathetic, you know? Yeah. yeah. And he's like, get the fuck off my property. You don't got a warrant. You know. Yeah, I, he's, I, I, that is that is the most aggressive I feel like I've maybe ever seen him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, seeing Art Carney hold you know, threatening to murder federal agents is kind of kind of a uh, you know It's unusual. It's, jar- it's jarring. Ed Norton, no. Um but he doesn't have to kill them because Drew Barryman was there and I just like I think the first time I watched it with my boyfriend, this, the, I think the brutality of that scene surprised him. Yeah, well, and the escalation from like, oh, she can do this. She really is this powerful. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah, yeah. And she will see. There's, there's that like, she starts burning them alive, and through like, the majority of the scene, there's this one guy on fire, dead on the ground. That just yep. continues to burn. <laughs> no, it's good continuity, and I yeah, it's the escalation. <laughs> like you, you see a couple of guys burn. And somehow they don't get the message after that. They keep advancing. And it's just like, okay, you want me to turn this shit on? I'm going to start blowing up your cars. Like, I'm going to immolate everything. I'm amazed anyone got out of that scene alive. Including the actual crew. Yeah. (laughs) There's good dummy work, too. Like, uh, if you freeze frame it when the two guys are getting in the car and the car blows up, there's some good dummies. Yeah. Yeah. That is a a delightful dummy. I love an obvious dummy. Oh, yes. <laughs> Unless they're voting. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but that, that seems also good because it shows that Charlie can't control it. Yeah, the whole back off, back off, back off thing. Yeah. And she doesn't know how to stop it and, and all that stuff. I love the look on um, Fletcher and Art's face though, when people start burning alive. They're like, fuck me. <laughs> like, oh, I thought this was bad. I didn't realize it was like this. I, I, I also wonder, like, so they leave. They take the jeep and leave. What does Art Carney do with those bodies? He's got a big property. <laughs> <laughs> the chickens are eating good tonight. Um, yeah, I mean that's protein, you know. Yeah, and then that's when I think it cuts to cuts to Martin Sheen, who's the head of the shop, working with uh, C. Scott, um, to really capture her. And I think after he murders that guy by breaking his nose, dude. <laughs> That thing, I had totally forgotten about the part where he just knows nose caving in kung fu, and God, is that a thing that just jarred me out of my seat when I saw it? Yeah, it is like, and he says a dick about it. Like he tickles the guy first, like wakes like, him up so he knows what's coming, knows what's coming. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that actor, by the way, is Freddie Jones. He plays Dr. Wanless, and I, I like him that he was in Dune, Crawl, and Firestarter. Oh, that's like a, a tri- <laughs> he's, a D- he's a Dino regular. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. I think a lot of those are Dino. Uh, this, Dino. Is a, this is a better movie than Crawl. I'm gonna say that. God, Crawl. You wait, crawl. wait the whole movie for the dumb glaive, and you barely get it. Yeah, I know. Anyway, um, this is not a podcast about Crawl. Again. Uh, <laughs> But when Joyce C. Scott, Joyce C. Scott, you know, he's a maniac, but he's much smarter. <laughs> Has that discretion and a tranquilizer yes. gun. Yeah. Um, and he quickly figures out where they are and knocks them out. And then they're in the shop. And this is what mi- I missed from the remake the most. Where Where is the shop? The shop in yeah. the remake is just like a badly lit hallway. It's like there is like the shop 
barely exists. And whereas yes. I feel like in this one, it's kind of this weird, like big plantation slash, yeah. you know, secret lair. It's, 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 it's fun. Yeah. It has yeah. that like sort of like Raccoon City, you know, sort of like here's your here's your <laughs> nice much. farmhouse. Yeah. But then there's the secret facility below exactly. it. Like it has that flavor of like the kind of the good secret government dumb shit. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there there is production design, like you know, little hotel rooms she's in. Like, you know, you you feel like and there's enough of this, you kinda of get to live in it for a while. The, yeah, it's it's you know, it feels like a real set piece, whereas the new film it's so rushed and barely there. Yeah, yeah, I love the windowless grandma living room that they put everyone into. Like, I it is it is the decor with the you are very clearly underground, and we are building you. Like, I don't even know why we put a window in this room. There's no reason for us to have done this. Yeah, and it's it's such an interesting idea. They they do it well. It 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 kind of I think it's real, again the pacing after the brutal fire murder massacre the movie slows down and yeah. you get this long protracted period of they're trying to make her use her powers and she doesn't want to. And it does. I think this is also a huge, this is where the stranger things stuff, you see the parallels very clearly here. Yeah. And it's well done here. And, it, and I think the stuff with George C. Scott here is weird. It's I don't understand fully what his intent is supposed well, to even be. It's from it's from the book. And like in the book it's also weird, but like you know, he, you know, he really takes a, like a real interest in her and really tries to kind of like, you know, turn her and understand her and like and like she's coming to terms with the full power she has that she could destroy the world, you know, like I think it's not completely conveyed in the film. No. So, I think the, the, the skeleton of it is there, you know. So you've read yeah. the book, right, Shane? Yeah, a long time ago. Like, oh, I haven't read the book. Middle school. (laughs) Um, how? So, how do I how to phrase this politely? So, he's a murdering bastard, yes, but is he also like you know how skeevy is he in the book? There are vague pedo pedophiliac kind of intentions in the book a little bit. It's 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 skeezy, yeah. Okay, because it's kind of it's I think probably more vague here, but kind of hinted at. Right, yeah, it's a little, it's a little untoward. It's a little weird, yeah, yes, for sure. Like, yeah, and he says how beautiful she is and how he loves her, and ah, it's 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 nasty. And the she, the scene where he gets her to like be her friend is like with the the how he pretends to be a traumatized Vietnam vet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's some it's some good psychopath stuff. It's just that like the what the weird creepiness around the character and his intentions. I think makes the the performance like a little more uncomfortable than even like the movie wants it to be right yeah and and i understand why they changed all this for the new one but what they did didn't really get explained or utilized oh, no, did, it, so, did it not yeah. did it not not remotely <laughs> not remotely no. i feel like i want to move on to talk about the new one so we, we should wrap up this first part well, quick but, but it's interesting i think just as this one is like climaxing and getting really good we'll get with, the yeah, hu- yeah. with the huge destruction i feel like yeah like this is where the new movie just like you know go, totally goes in the ditch and, and like it completely fails. beefs it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because but, there's a lot of like there's a, there's a good like you know let's see her experiment with burning stuff scenes and how the dad gets his powers back to orchestrate an escape and it all goes that all goes wrong so you can get to that finale. Which yeah, and all that and most of that's gone in the new movie. There's no the testing of her powers, but I think it's kind of a necessary scene. You kind of yeah. need to see yeah. the job testing her. Yes. And and the thing is, I is as much as that stuff slows the movie down, I think most of it is still vital. Like I think yeah. a lot of the Martin, especially like 
the complete elation that Martin Sheen has when he finally gets yeah. her to do like to blow up cinder blocks with her brain. Yeah. Like that is like that. That's some good acting right there. Like all the stuff that as creepy as the George C. Scott stuff is, I feel like they build that dynamic in a way that at least makes it feel important to the plot. Yep. And yeah. seeing all that stuff and the stuff with, with David Keith and kind of realizing that like he has a plan going on under the surface of, you know, his fake drugged out haze. I think all that stuff works pretty well. It's just that there's a lot of it in, I can see someone in 1984 like shifting around in their seats a lot. Like, when are they going to get to the burning people stuff? <laughs> yes, and it's a little slow, but like it does work for the most part. And again, I think it's one of those things that once you get to the ending, I think the slowness works in its favor because it's such a good payoff. <sighs> yeah, the stuff in the barn. And like him hiding in the top floor of the barn is like that stuff. I feel like it goes on maybe a little too long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But once they get past that, it's just like, okay, here we fucking go. At the point at which Charlie's kind of, you know, final assault begins. It is fantastic climax. Like super, super thrilling. Yeah. Once Tangerine Dream turn on those sequencers, it is go time. Yeah. I, I always like I love revenge in movies because it's simple. In real life, it's not. That's why I like a good. That's why I like a good vigilante movie, but not you know real life vigilante bad. But again, it is this for me. It is just such a deeply satisfying scene. Yes, because the best part about it is a lot of these people had a chance to get away. Like they didn't have to try to murder her. No, they well, keep quite, running up. It's quite a body count too. I mean, it like just yeah, it's it's pretty massive. <laughs> But there's like a half dozen guys that absolutely could have lived if they had just run. Instead, they watch someone get burned to death, try to shoot guns at her, not working because now she has fire, like fire shield. Yes. And like they just said, well, I'm going to try this, too, and maybe I'll be the one that it works for. Nope. Nope. Uh, You're going to get set on fire and thrown into a tree. (laughs) That's God. what death. the dude who the flaming body flies in the tree. I like that. Um, that one's real good. That one's real good. And this is where all the budget went, other than you know getting getting oh. Drew Barrymore, because yeah. like the budget for this was about twelve million dollars, which in today's money is about forty million, which is more than the remake. And like they they built a fake house to blow up. They 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 installed. We used to blow things on. up in this country. I'm telling well, you. And, and yeah. Like, CG fire is so terrible. It's like one of the worst things up there with CG blood. So seeing a place, seeing a movie where every fire effect is real fire, oh, mm-hmm. it's gorgeous. Yeah. yeah, and and you don't even realize like when they're making it. Obviously, they can't have Drew Barrymore near any of this shit. No, <laughs> because that's an OSHA violation. Look, they were violating a lot of labor laws back then, but I feel like that is one that they had to make sure for. Mark Lester, not the greatest director, but he's not John Landis. Um, no, so. Sorry, but like, but you never, you never tell. You can never tell that she's not there. The it, 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 it never takes you out of the movie. Um, no, it's just such a well-made scene, and I feel like the after you know the the epilogue where he goes back with the old people is kind of silly. Um, especially yeah, but I mean, it's like, what else is she gonna do? You know, like yeah. she's. She's a kid. Like she does, she can't just walk the earth like you know Qui Gon Kane. Like she's got to fucking do something. Well, in the in the book, yeah. she go she goes and tells her story to Rolling Stone magazine at the end. She's like, 
Like the final scene is her like walking into the office of the Rolling Stone with like her story that she's written. <laughs> Get me Kurt Loader. <laughs> Pretty much. God, remember when people treated Rolling Stone like it was right? like the alternative journalism? Oh god. Yes. Uh, what a well, time. I mean, Cream Cream magazine had, had folded by then. So Yeah. Yes. You know, there, there was one other scene midway through the film that we, I, we forgot to mention that I do really like. It's the scene mm-hmm. where she and her dad are like in the forest and they they come in like, you know, Rainbird and, and team come with, you know, in hazmat suits and, and shoot with him with uh, the tranquilizer dart and he drops the box of raisin checks. I think it's a really good scene. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, I was watching that and I was like, ooh, checks. You remember raisin checks? It's the 80s. Oh, man. Bring well, back raisin checks. But I live in Japan. I can't get checks. Oh, and should I bring you some checks next time I come to Japan? I will. We'll make a list. Give me some checks, okay. uh, yeah. some hot tamales, uh, and some Sudafed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll have, a good, I'll have a good weekend. This movie, as, as we said, it, like it didn't do great when it came out. Um, critics didn't like it, but even, most critics, almost all the reviews I found were two to three stars. No, yeah, it's, it's definitely in in the middle. But it, you know, it's a movie that comes on cable. You're gonna watch it on TBS yeah. or something. You know, yeah. yeah. It, it, it is a movie that does that is better. I think that maybe not better on TV because I would love to watch the fireballs on a big screen. But it's a it's it has it kind of feels like a procedural drama. To a certain extent, and totally. Like I said, like it has this flavor of a show where you're you're checking in on these characters week to week. Yeah, um, I think the only person that straight up hated it hated it was Stephen King. He hated most of his adaptations. Mm-hmm. I feel like he hates yeah. Kubrick's He hates Kubrick's Shining, and his version is not so good. No, Stephen no. Weber is no Jack Nicholson. No, um, no. But the movie did okay when it came out. It made it, it broke even. It opened um. um May 11th, 1984, it opened in third place behind The Natural and Breakin'. Breakin'? I think, is that, I is think this canon? is a better movie than Breakin'. Is Breakin' by Canon Films? Yes, it is. Nice. Bra- Breakin' in its second week. <laughs> wow. <laughs> People were uh, breaking crazy back then. I'd never seen Breakin'. Breakin' 2 is a good movie. Yeah, um, I, I think Breakin' 2 is a little more interesting. Yeah, and you know, has the good Breakin'. Uh, has the dancing yeah. on the ceiling. Yeah. Uh, by June, Temple of Doom and Star Trek three came out. This movie was fucked, so yeah. it wasn't going to have any legs. Uh, but obviously, its legacy is huge. With I, I honestly believe you do not have Stranger Things without this movie. Full stop. I, th- I, I think that's had. a totally fair assessment. Oh, I agree. I also think you know back then this probably did pretty well on, v- on VHS and rental. I remember the I remember the box very clearly. I'm sure mm-hmm. you do, James. <laughs> oh, of box. course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but they and always think, put it in the horror section. I feel like this just isn't really I mean, it has scary parts of it, but this isn't really strictly speaking a horror film. Well, speaking True. as someone who 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 grew up in a video store, you had to put all Stephen King in the horror section. And even in my store, I think we had standby me there. Just because See, that is that's senseless. That well, no, we had a Stephen King, a Stephen King sign. Yeah. That should be in family or drama, I would say. Yeah, I know, but it was, you know, what are you gonna people people wanted to look people want Stephen King shit. So would you put Shawshank Redemption in horror? I think By the not. time Shawshank came out, the video store was closed. <laughs> so, okay. 
I don't I don't think we would have done that though. No, um, it, it transcends Stephen King. But yeah, so the movie you know has a legacy to an extent. There is the the sci-fi series re, um, sequel, which we're not rekindled. <laughs> three three hours. Three hours. Three which we hours. are not talking about today because I already hate myself enough. Um, and then in 2010, Universal was like, "Hey, let's remake Firestarter." They got Mark L. Smith, the writer of Vacancy, to write it. And they were like, we're going to turn this into a franchise. Uh, I don't know why. Well, this, they... was the, the, this is the, after the post-it Stephen King boom. There was like a Stephen no, King is, bubble. This and... is 2010. They started yeah, yeah. pre-production oh, on this. Oh, you're right. They started pre-production early. on this in 2010. Holy but shit. N- that was before it. it. Before Stranger Things. Probably Stranger Things got it, got lit the fire on it. No, no pun uh-huh. intended. Uh-huh. That, that script was, was, was trashed. Blumhouse took control of it and they started adapt they started their work on it in 20, 2017 okay and so, post strange things post seven, strange seven, things. seven years of development hell that's pretty long yeah, yeah, I, well, yeah. I feel a lot of that was nothing and yeah. the when they started working on it they immediately decided to, to deviate more from the from this from the book because they were like the first movie is so fateful let's do something different and boy did they So, okay, Alex, can you say before we can you say anything good about this movie? The thing I came away from it with is that it's not just that it deviates, which whatever, fine. You want to do a different thing, yeah. do a different thing. But the thing it's doing is hewing even closer to the shit that Stranger Things was pulling from. It feels like a photocopy of a photocopy. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like there are there are beats there, there are familiar lines there but a lot of what they jammed in is just unintelligible. And the only thing I can say that I guess would be close to a compliment is that I don't think Zac Efron's bad in it. And I actually don't think the girl is that bad. I think the material, Mm. the material is way worse than the acting. Yeah. And when I watched it, I thought when I watched it recently, I thought Zac Efron was terrible, but then the more I thought about it, the more is the script. No, like, I don't actually. I I think he's as good, you know he's effective enough. He's good enough. In I think I actually I, and I, I'll say something else good about this. I think that you know uh, Victoria McGee, the mother being more of a character and you know being more involved, having more screen time is is a good thing, even if it's not ultimately great stuff that she's given. But at least there's more of her. There's more yeah, of Jolly's yeah. mom, which she I feels like. like a real character and not just he, and yeah. and featuring Heather Locklear. <laughs> Yeah, and and I'll say the first forty minutes of this do feel kind of lived in. You know, like it has a reality to it you know, that is kind of updated and like believable to an extent. Yeah. yeah, and I like I said, I think that girl is fine. What, what's her name? Her name is Ryan. Yeah, Ryan Kiera Ryan Armstrong. Kiera. But like, He's, my problem with my problem with her is aging her up. But like, I don't feel like this actress is de- you know necessarily delivering a whole lot more character to Charlie to mm-hmm. than you know considering how much older she is. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and Zac Efron's fine. 
I feel and and Sydney Lemon plays Victoria. The um, she's, she's, I think she's pretty good in this. I think yeah, she's actually pretty good. Yeah, of all the I acting, I think she she acts the most. Um, you have Kurtwood Smith here for no reason, <laughs> none, senseless character. Why would you pay him money to play this one scene <laughs> where he does nothing to do? Okay, here's my theory, and I don't know if this is true or not. This movie really feels to me like it was chopped up in post. Definitely. Because there feels like there's another half hour of this movie that would have made it 15% better. Because they, they, they cut out the, the entire experiment scene is done over the opening credits, which is fucking terrible. It's but bad. Yeah, bad I editing. I feel like... Also, this movie takes place in 2022. They would not... And so the, the experiment is 10 years earlier, but they're still using VHS tape? <laughs> What Look, government fuck? is very slow to upgrade their technology. <laughs> he didn't have many, many, many DV back then. But yeah, he has one scene. He, you, you, you hear him in the opening credits, which is why I feel like maybe they had more with him. That scene he's in is ri- ridiculous. It, it is terrible. And Gloria Rubin, who is... Look, she's oh. she's a serviceable workman-like actress who, I, as far as I know, mostly from TV stuff. Mm-hmm. She has no handle on what to do with this character, which yeah, has what, no writing to it at all. Like, had I not recently watched the original Firestar, I would have even known what who that character was supposed to be. Like, yeah, no semblance of like who, like, who is who is this character. And like, there is feel, no gravity to it. And okay, I want to I be careful how I say this. So, like, the movie is much more diverse than the original in in, in terms of casting. Yes, uh, which is good, especially with with Gray, Michael Gray Eyes playing Brainbird. I don't think. The character is interesting now, and that's not his fault. This is you. You conceptualized something here, which is to say, there is they're obviously alluding to the idea that the government was experimenting on natives before they started bringing yes. coeds to run these experiments on. And I think there's something you can latch onto with that to create a backstory for a character. They do none of the work, mm-hmm. and there is nothing in the writing for this for again for Michael well, Gray eyes to latch onto. And but, but you know his, his character does kind of get a payoff for for that it's at the end of the film which makes no like, sense. Yeah, what is but what do you glean from that? Like nothing like you know it's setting up for a sequel that we're never going to get because this is terrible. Like it's the yeah. least earned turn that I've seen in any movie recently. Yeah, and but to go back to Glory Rubin for a second, her character has some of the worst dialogue. Oh, and I terrible. feel like the like, I think she knows. I feel like she can't even deliver it. Like she, yeah, yeah, she's been yeah, fucked in the head bad. since birth. <laughs> yeah. Brain fucked since birth. And I feel like they're trying when I say like they're doing diversity badly because they took this character who was Pippa Martin Sheen in the original and they gave it to a, a woman of color. But they go they try to make her so goddamn aggro and like against type that And that's co- just it, not who Gloria Rubin is as an actress. No, Gloria Rubin Gloria Rubin is the nice lady on ER who quit ER to go single Tina Turner in real life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Which is, a, I love that story. She's like, I could be yeah, on ER or I could go single Tina Turner. That, that's a much Peace. better story than, this, than the story of this script of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a complete, and, and like, to go back to Grey Eyes, like, yeah, he is a, an indigenous Canadian actor. I have seen him in films. I feel like I, he is only typecast as natives because very rarely do indigenous people, First Nations people get to play just regular people. Yeah. In Hollywood, right. they still. can't have a character that does not turn their indigenousness into their primary driving force. Yes, which sucks shit. 
It does um, suck that Hollywood's like, oh, if we're not going to cast white people as you, well, we'll, we'll cast you only in Native American roles, and that's it, yeah. But the yeah. fact that they made the actor Native, and that's great, but I feel like the character is more offensive now. The character has, I do not understand his motivations whatsoever. And it, by the time the movie right. wraps up, it's like, I understand less about him like, than I did at the he, beginning. He, he brutally murders her mother. And well, no, what, no justification. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean, Alex? When you see her, you'll understand. <laughs> what? <laughs> what do I understand? What are we that doing? Is, that is the stupidest line. Because what does that even mean? <laughs> Nothing. Well, and it's just weird that they would be like, he's really the character that getting fundamentally changed completely in this story. And you, for no, no reasons, no justification. No explanation yeah. They turn, they turn yeah. him into Jason Bourne, fucking solid yeah. snake. Like, and yeah. okay, if you're going to do that, go all the way with it. And they don't. The only thing Which I like about weird. the character is that they have him listening to Nitzareb. Yeah. Like, it, the song he's rocking out to when he, before he calls him is an old Nitzareb song. And I was like, fuck yeah. I like Nitzareb. Oh. Let's hang out, Rainbird. Talk yeah. about well, EBM. I, I, honestly, the other big choice <laughs> they make is with the whole farmhouse thing. And the, oh. all the everything's different. All the motivations are different. It's it feels sour and bad. Like it's yeah, it's real oh, bad. Bef- Not good. Before we even get to how they fuck up the first act, we have to about how they fuck up the second act with um Irv changing Irv yeah. so much. Look, I I adore John Beasley as an actor. I think he is when I, usually when I see him in something, I'm like, oh, John Beasley, I'm happy. God, this I, this the, what they did to this character's motivations and how they twisted that shit around for yeah. to illustrate powers, which again are incredibly ill defined, right? <laughs> <laughs> I just I I felt so bad for everyone in that whole section of the movie. Yeah, also like. Giving the huge tell to every time Andy uses powers, it's so obvious. You know, he's like clearly killing himself every time he uses his incredibly powerful powers, which you know like are beyond recognition. Yeah, it's it's a lot. Also, the the idea in this one, they're on the run and they don't they don't use smartphones. They don't have computers because they can be traced. How is he advertising his business? <laughs> right, <laughs> word of mouth, flyers word, yes, in the local of- periodical, smoke signals. Yeah, yeah, because um, of the fire. Um, but yeah, that that the 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 idea of like Irv's wife is now in a like you know vegetative state, and all this stuff. And I feel like the part where he's up all night drinking and watching cable news, I feel like that's a really bad comment of uh, uh, trying to be a commentary on like the Fox News culture. Yeah, but but, but it does it doesn't stick. It's not. Yeah, it's ugh, it's not scene. anything. Yeah, oh, I hated. I hated the farmhouse scene. And in in the and then and he never comes back. He just is there bleeding, as far as we know, for the rest of the movie. And she doesn't get a chance to do her thing because instead, gray eyes just kills everybody. Right. Like yeah, <sighs> they they took one of the one of the highlights of the first half of the original film and just totally ruined it. Yeah. And she baffling. runs. Yeah, baffling. And then she runs away for a montage. <laughs> and this uh, look every. <laughs> Wait, wait, did we, did we forget about her killing the fucking cat? What the oh, fuck yeah. is that? I was so oh, mad at that scene. God, I was so I goddamn it. mad at that scene. Why did you make me watch this movie, James? Hey, you you told me you didn't watch it again. Uh, I watched the trailer this morning. It made me mad. <laughs> I, only, I only watched the film once. I'm glad, and I'm glad it was on Amazon for free. I didn't pay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, no, yeah, definitely don't pay to see this movie. But like, well, and I mean, this movie was dumped, too. Like, I guess it was, it did play in theaters last year, but like nobody. It was on Peacock at the same time. Yeah. 
it has a it has a Rotten Tomato score of ten percent. If that tells you anything, <laughs> like that's low even by Rotten Tomato standards. It has a Letterbox score of one point eight. <laughs> wow. that surprised me because I like, gave it a half a star, but I thought it'd be an outlier. Okay, back to the cat. Like another choice. <laughs> Why? Why, Why? Have her kill the cat? Because they're trying to illustrate that she doesn't want to kill and that she feels <sighs> terrible when she does something like that. But they spend the worst amount of time on it. They, they showing the cat in the burn state is like, just, I, I wanted to turn the fucking thing off at that point. I don't, for some reason I don't mind watching like dudes in suits get immolated for like 15 minutes at a time, but like one burn cat, I'm out. Yeah. Well, and I mean, she could, she could, she could have killed like a crow. She could have killed like a bug. I mean, she, my, my, my cat, like just cut to the part where they've already buried the cat. And I'm fine with that. But like, it's it, the thing they're trying to illustrate is done so ham handedly. And it's a thing that it, the movie can never quite commit to because, you know, they're teasing the idea that like, oh, the killing, it, you know, the power feels good, but you should never use it. But like, they just can't find a good through line to get her to the point where she realizes she has to kill no matter what. It doesn't feel like a payoff when they finally get there. No. Yeah. And I think the movie, the movie's trying to focus more on the gore of burning also because once he kills that one guy later in the car, like the same thing happens. Uh, and that I felt nothing about, but like, it, it, but that's the thing is like, that's the one they went out of their way to try to illustrate. It's like, oh, it's so terrible. He's talking to his pregnant wife. And it's like, eh, whatever. And by that whatever. point, like, he's working cares? for an organization that kidnapped little kids. I don't care. You know, like, it was, it was pretty gory. Gun. It was pretty gory though. I'll give, I'll give it that. Well, but like, it's, oh yeah. Yeah. And I feel like they want to up, they want to, they want to focus on that for a little bit, but then later they don't. And we'll get to that in a right. second. But, before we get to, again, the payoff's terrible. That, that montage is stupid, where she's just kind of in the woods for half an hour and she, she holds oh, her you, powers. You no, know, it's like it's like 10 seconds. It's like, yeah. oh, she, yeah, like it's totally unbelievable. You, I, I needed more training montage if I want to believe that she's on your back. And, yeah. and this is also why I really want to point out that, so the score by this is by John Carpenter, and it I mean, sucks. I mean, it's him and his son and someone else, but it's, you know, it's kind of, he's kind of phoning it in, like, feel compared to his recent Halloween output, which was better. But even mm-hmm. that's kind of just self-referential. But it's, it's I don't know. I felt like the score was one of the better components of this film. The one of being the, like, like a C minus D plus. I don't know. The worst tracks on those Lost theme albums are still better than most of what's in here. Like, I, I feel like this is super him phoning it in. It's, just, it's mostly just beats. Yeah. There's very little melody to it, especially at the end. And But during this whole montage, it's like, that's when the score has to pick up. And it doesn't. No. Um, yeah. And so I feel like then, he was like scoring this watching the movie, and you can just feel him like getting less and less committed to hitting the keys <laughs> as he's going along. Like, I know I'm supposed to be building up here, but I just I can't for this. Like, Cody, was, can you build a, can you build me an AI to do this or something? Maybe he was like, I was supposed yeah. to direct this in nineteen eighty one. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Finally he gets his revenge. This is revenge by delivering a subpar score. Apparently the director like thought about asking Carpenter about what he was going to do and then didn't. Uh, Maybe he, he should have. I think the real reality is he did. And John Carpenter's like, that's not what I'm getting paid for. Fuck you. <laughs> you that's want my like, ideas. You got to pay a whole extra check for that. You're keeping me from my video games and my basketball. How dare you? Um, fuck you. Bless pay his me. heart. But yeah. John Carpenter is a national hero. He's he's wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, the ending of this movie is the worst thing that's ever happened. <laughs> oh god it, what what a complete fizzle i mean it's like a dead firework it's like they ran out of money and you like see a little bit of fire in the distance or something it's like it, it's not good 
It's not good. It's it's like desperate in how bad it is because it feels like there were things they wanted to do they couldn't do it. So they're trying to create as much spectacle out of the limited resources they have, and it's just they get nothing, nothing. And, and it oh, I forgot to mention also this entire film looks terrible. terrible. It's so bad. Look, the lighting thing in modern movies is a thing that has been much discussed. It is a widespread problem. This is yeah. maybe one of the single worst examples of it I've ever seen. What do you yeah, mean by the that? The lighting is terrible. It's dark. The whole thing looks kind of dark mm-hmm. often indoors, too, it's, I felt. What, yeah. what I mean is like the way that modern movies are badly lit, like frequently. And that like just there are whole scenes in, in this movie where you can't discern what characters are doing, how they're moving through the scene, because the, it's just all so dim and gray. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of murky. It just, everything, everything in the last half of the film, I felt looked kind of murky and dull. What, even the, when they pull out the colored lighting, it still uh, just has no pop to it. Synthwave Firestarter. Um, yeah. Well, it doesn't help because Amazon, I'll say streaming, never looks good for me. Never looks good. So, yeah, the first time I watched this on, I watched it on, I think I watched it on Peacock. And mm. I had to tur- I had to go into my TV settings and turn off the HDR because I literally bl- bl- gloomy this- or blown out or something. There, there was a scene where he's talking to a mom like, "Do I scare you?" That scene, and I couldn't see their fucking faces. That's <laughs> yeah. how dark it was. Yeah. And so when I watched it on Amazon this time, I'm like, "Well, you know what? This is the version they put out. I'm gonna watch it." But yeah, it doesn't have a great look, and like I just think the overall production, you know, you can you can make better looking movies in Canada. I'm sorry, you know, like it, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't look very expensive. The, the production design is not very lush. Looks kind of yeah. cheap. The director's a guy named Keith Thomas. Um, he made a movie called The Vigil, which I never heard of. Well, I've heard it's actually fantastic. Yeah. Um, but me too. he also he wasn't the first choice. The original director for this was a German guy who was some you know art house auteur guy, and he quit. Really, I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah, he quit. Halfway through. Um, the nicest thing I can say about Keith Thomas is that in the behind-the-scenes footage I watched, he was wearing a health band t-shirt. Um, and I like. Okay, health. so he has some taste. Some taste, yes. But and it, maybe it's not even all his fault because this movie had a like a twelve million dollar budget. Yeah, I think he ha- I was handed a, something that was already a mess, and it was just yeah. saw it through to the end. I don't bl- I don't blame him entirely. Yeah, yeah, but I blame the writer more, to be honest. Um, who is uh Scott Teams, who's apparently what he wrote Halloween Kills. Well, and I'll say Blumhouse. It seems like some films they spend more time and effort on, other ones they don't. I have you all watched a lot of Blumhouse? Movies? I have not. I've, I've seen, seen the decent here, number. Some, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like they're usually reliably okay at at worst. Like I, they they do put out some bad movies, but like most of the Bluehouse stuff I've seen has been like okay. They at least threw some money at this thing. This movie they threw producers out because it has twelve fucking producers. <laughs> God, <laughs> I I read somewhere that that's a bad sign. Like the more producers you get, the like it's just it's a, it's a it's a it's like a giant red flag. Yeah, maybe it usually means that you have every- to go. Sorry, it means you had to go hunting for money multiple yeah. times throughout the production. Yeah, you probably ran out of money, but you also have maybe had too many people giving you notes, and that's why it's like a mess. Yeah, you know? uh, th- th- that Walter Hill movie, Bullet to the Head with Stallone, that had sixteen. Oh producers. yeah, uh, and that movie's that movie has some has some charm, but it's also a mess. But the ending of this, like the original, they got the giant plantation, they're burning shit left and right. There are literal fireballs. This, she burned some guys' heads off. And it doesn't even look good. No. no. 
and there's no, there's no real fireball flying towards you. That never happens. Like you're like you could have at least tried to replicate that shot. Like did you you know it was from forty years ago. Do it again. Like yeah, come on. Like yeah. in the few instances where they give her the full on, she's screaming at the camera. Here's your fire effect. It looks like an Instagram filter. Like it is. <laughs> there's no, it's an effect. You put it as a frame around a photo. It does not look like there is a fireball coming out of this girl. <laughs> Yeah, and and because and they do like like uh what do you, like like waves of fire more, yeah, right? yeah. like a shock wave of fire. And oh, I, I will say ahead. one of the best fire effects is the very beginning of the movie when the when as a baby she's on fire. That looked, that looked pretty good. That's one of the yeah. better fire effects. <laughs> fire baby, um, fire baby. Yes, like when and then I think they try to go for the tone of the old one once he kills that lady. You know, who's but trying to escape? Yeah, there's, but there's no gravity to it. To me. There's no, yeah, know. there's no gravitas, and you don't see her burn. No. Like, you know, all you see is the, the aftermath, which to be fair, it's a pretty grody aftermath, but like what there again, this is where the like the unevenness of the like this messaging of, you know, killing is bad, you're gonna feel bad about it, but sometimes you have to do it. Like, there's no like you can't draw any kind of line to that scene of her like going over the edge or whatever. It's just like it it feels like that part in Jurassic World where that woman dies for like four minutes to seventeen different dinosaurs, yeah, and you have no real reason to hate her other than she's like slightly annoying. Uh, that you mean that incredibly misogynistic scene in that terrible yes. movie, yeah, yeah, that one, and that's kind yeah. of what this feels like. Is like I don't know what I'm supposed to feel for this character. I don't think this really illustrates that she's like over the edge necessarily. It just feels like you needed to luxuriate on someone that didn't have a gun dying mm. and you had no idea how to stage it. And I feel like that scene, the entire, so in the original, it's her decision to do this. In this, before her dad, she her dad pushes her to kill him. Yes. And then so she's technically under his control doing all this. Um, yeah. Which doesn't explain the liar, liar, pants on fire part. Um, that has which, to have been a line that was cut somewhere else in the movie because that feels like the thing you're yeah. supposed to say that reminds you that they said it earlier in the movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's very, it's very, very awkward as the climax went. I felt, like. and I, then d- uh, didn't buy it. To add insult to injury, she doesn't even she isn't even the one who kills everybody because at the very end, Rainbird saves her, and she lets him go. Oh. <sighs> yeah, what? Like, they, this is the big thing they wanted to say. This is the big theme of the movie. That's the reason this movie exists. Like, what? Like, how is any fan of Firestarter going to be happy about this? Like, no, no. Like, is... I feel like they're going for some kind of redemption of killers thing where it's like, yes, she's bad. Yes, she has decided to tip over and start killing all these people. But when she's presented with someone who just surrenders, someone who is like her that just surrenders we find out she's not as far gone as maybe some of these other, you know, like someone like, like Rainbird is, but again, it does not land whatsoever. And the, t- the last shot, the whole thing that they like, clearly they're setting up some kind of like, okay, now Rainbird gets to train her thing. It is so unearned. Yeah. Oh. It, I was really confused by the ending and the leap they, they took with it. Like, and there's the, it's not earned. None of it's earned. None. Well, they don't, they don't, so there's two endings to this movie. Actually, there's another ending where he where she does kill him, but you don't see it. Wait, where's that ending to be found? It's on. It was on the Blu-ray and it's online. Um, you buy the blue. You buy the but it's basically it's really just a different edit because it cuts away. She's like about to boil him, and it cuts away, and she's walking outside alone. 
So oh. there is no filmed version where Rainbird gets what he deserves. It's like I get the whole redemption arc thing, but like you know, no, she he killed your mom, <laughs> burn him Violently. from the taint up. Yeah, yeah, like it is. What what a weird decision, person who wrote this screenplay. What were you thinking? Yeah, and they had plans for this. They wanted to turn it into a franchise. Um, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I almost feel like if if this was the story they wanted to tell, like adapting it as a series or like a mini series, giving it more you know yeah. budget because it needs it, and like stretching out, give, you know, making it make more sense. Like, yeah, the whole thing is just like so badly paced. Like, make this, if you're going to put it on Peacock, especially, just make it a six-episode miniseries. Right. You know, like, yeah. Peacock exclusive, baby. Let's go. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, I am on the record of saying that I really ha- I really don't like a lot of, like, modern, quote-unquote, prestige TV, you know, because it, it feels too self-important and drawn out. But this is a story that it, a, a slightly more drawn-out version would work better. Well, yes. but, you know, but to, 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 to fear a monkey paw, like I suffered through <laughs> CBS All Access The Stand two years ago. I don't know if oh. you know, like I'm a huge fan of The Stand. I also like the original miniseries and that all eight, like nine hours of it, pretty much a disaster, kind of like not great. And a new ending by Stephen King that's kind of OK, but is it really earned at the end, too? Like this kind of reminded me a little bit of that. I mean, this is way worse than The Stand. This is, why the, access, only, this is why the only TV I watch online right now is Benson. Safe. Benson's, Benson is good. It's a fine good. program. A fine program. Weren't, you, this, weren't you watching Soap? Weren't you also, also watching well, Soap? Well, yeah, we, we went through all of Soap, then you got to do, <laughs> do Benson. So, anyway, um, but this movie, like, completely bombed. And, but, you know, it, it was on Peacock also. It's hard to tell. Did it even make any money at the theater at all? Like a million dollars or something? Um, Nothing? Nothing. It made, let's see, really quick. According to Wikipedia, it made $15 million on a $12 million wow. budget. Oh. That's more than it deserves. <laughs> but you know what? Fifteen million dollars in twenty twenty two theater money, like that's bad even by pandemic standards. Yes, this is yeah. true. And it was savaged by critics. I do. It made of some worst of the Alliance of Women Film Journalists na- nominated it for Time Waster remake or sequel, but lo- it lost to Jurassic World Dominion, which Although, okay probably fair. I think you were about to get to the recent controversy we'll get there. about yeah. a certain, yeah, because yeah, like that that is uh, uh, of the moment. Yeah. Yes, but the Razzies, who I hate, Ugh, I hate they suck. you know historically misogynist assholes. Historically, so I've said this story before. Do you know? Do either of you know why the Razzies started in the first place? To make fun of like, wasn't it like specifically to pile on one movie at the beginning? Some no. some str- straight white boy, and that's 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 relevant. <laughs> I forgot his name. He had to go see Xanadu and Can't Stop the Music in the same day. Right. And so Can't Stop the Music is the Village People movie. Um, Xanadu is wonderful. Um, I'm homosexual. Um, I, feel like I have nothing, we, I have nothing bad did. to say about Xanadu. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's funny, even though I never did an episode on Can't Stop the Music, I think we talked about it at length during the, the Apple, Apple episode. episode. Yes. Yeah. I like that yeah. movie. Um Regardless, I, I think you just I, like you just like Gutenberg. You like Gutenberg. I like hey, it's and it's a G-rated movie with full frontal male nudity. So anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I feel like the Razzie started. So the Razzie started because a straight white guy had to see two gay movies, um, yeah. and it broke his little brain. Um, so fuck the Razzies. They nominated this for worst remake for proper sequel. That's fair. Which which was fair. Fair, fair. play there. And then they nominated that little girl, Ryan Kiera Armstrong, for worst actress. No, she's um, not even bad. She's not even bad. She's fine. Not, it's not even, these, no, it's look, fine. child acting is an incredibly fraught thing to begin with, and yep. 
there are certainly child performances where you're like, okay, this child should not be acting. I didn't have that feeling watching her perform. I had a feeling of mortification realizing she has, she is struggling with some of the worst dialogue that yeah. I've seen a child actor have to do in some time. And they rescinded that at the, at the, after some backlash, they rescinded it. They changed the rules. Now only adults can be nominated. But like one thing I've learned by watching a lot of like mediocre to bad movies with major actors in them is like a lot of times when a performance is bad, it's not their fault. Unless sometimes Mark, it is. If the Mark Wahlberg, it is. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of times, like like Zac Efron's bad in this movie, but he's a good actor. Yeah, he's fine. I you, I've has, liked him in plenty of stuff. He just has terrible dialogue. Same no, yeah. nobody nobody's good in this movie. Yeah, nobody's good. And then none when of the, none of the material's when, good. And when nobody is good, that's a sign that it's not their fault. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, fuck this movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I I gathered you all here today. Just so well, more know, people would hear me say fuck this it movie. It is funny. Like it's a movie where, where no one seems to be having a good time. It kind of reminds me of the Nightmare uh, on Elm Street remake, where yeah, no one's having a good time. Everyone just seems di- di- dismal. You know? God, like, oh. I had to review that fucking movie. What a piece <laughs> of shit. Right? But similarly, like, oh, why is this here? Like, you could have done so much, and this is what you did. Like, oh. No, so, I feel like that movie exists specifically because someone involved with the property was mad about that final shot in the first one where the mannequin gets pulled from the window. Right. Like, we have to do that better. And then oh. they just didn't write the rest of the movie around it. But, that could be my favorite obvious mannequin of all time. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's a great mannequin. I have nothing against it. But, but yeah, like, this... Okay, so here's the thing. This is the most. This is the first time I've seen a recent Stephen King adaptation in years. The most recent Stephen King thing I had seen prior to this was The Mist, uh, a movie. Mm, I that's a great. Liked. That's a great film. Yeah, yeah, I like that movie. But so to see how what kind of hard times the old King verse has fallen upon, uh, it did my heart bad. It made me no, sad. The- the wheels have come off the Stephen King uh, bubble. It, it burst and everything's falling apart now. Like I poor watched, Salem's Lot. Poor Salem's Lot is like they wouldn't. You know, it's barely. It doesn't even release date yet, yet. Like I think. I think. I I I heard good things about the Pet Cemetery remake. Um, you heard the wrong. recent one. I, I recent, heard wrong. The okay. Recent one. Okay. Yeah, I didn't I watch it, but I did. it, but I've heard terrible things well, about it. But have you, I know it's not. But it does have a completely different, weird twist ending that like isn't earned. So it does that. Pet Cemetery for me falls into the Stephen King camp of it's not scary, it's just sad. Oh, have you read the book? It's a sc- it's the scariest book to Oh, I know so the scary. book is scary, but like like Carrie. Like Carrie doesn't scare me. Carrie's a sad. You know what? The kid fucking cutting that dude's Achilles tendon is still one of those things yeah. that is yeah. that is absolutely yeah. bl- burned into my brain from when I was a kid. So I will call that part pretty scary. Uh, well, af- ever since I had young nieces and nephews, I don't like I don't like Pet Cemetery anymore. Sure. <laughs> um, but this this one I feel is 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 has to be one of the worst. I think the only King movie I've seen worse than this. I I tried to watch Cell. Oh, I Cell's for, not a good book I either. Thought there was a movie of Cell. Yikes! Yeah, with John Cusack and Samuel. I turned that off. And you know, Graveyard Shift. <laughs> That's a loose, very loose. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't count. Okay. But you know what? I'll give that movie. Those people seem like they were having fun. That that's true. This no one's having fun. Well, I would definitely rather watch either Maximum Overdrive or my personal favorite Sleepwalkers than ever watch this Sleepwalker. Yeah. What's worse? What's worse? This or Tommy Knockers? Oh, 
I'm a Tommy Knocker's defender, both the film and the, I mean, both the, the uh, book and the miniseries. So yeah, I'm a Knocker fan. Oh, that's so. right. Okay, oh, Langoliers. Langoliers. Oh, oh, I, yeah. love, I love the Langoliers. Bronson Pinchot is spectacular <laughs> in the Langoliers. The CG of the Langoliers, chef's kiss. Okay, I've got the shit right here. Wait, I just tweeted last week that I want a Langoliers reboot from the Langoliers perspective. Yes. But go ahead. Okay, go ahead, so I'll here's the shiv. Here's the one. Dreamcatcher. Ooh. You know, re- recently that. been been Name a good thing about Dreamcatcher that isn't Morgan Freeman's eyebrows. Shit weasels. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I won't allow it. <laughs> looking, I'm looking at this complete adapter books now, and I, you know, um, Finner is not good. Uh, oh my no. god! So yeah, again, Night the Dark Tower. Flyer. <laughs> The Dark Tower 2017 oh. by Akira, Gold- Akira Goldman is an F minus terrible, like destroyed my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I never heard anything good about that. Um, they're they're oh. doing the Boogeyman now, which looks like it's barely based on this short story. Like it looks like, because how do you make that into a movie? Uh, so, but in my personal ranking, I am now ranking every movie on, on inspired by you, Alex, on the Watchcast. I mm-hmm. am ranking every movie I cover. And I know you guys haven't seen all of them, but really quick, I put. Original Firestarter, number 46 out of 65, which means okay. it is worse than Ravenous and Runaway uh, and BMX Bandits. <laughs> but Are we up to 65 episodes of Cinema Oblivion? Well, some of them some of two, two movies. All right, um, okay. And, but I think it's better than Gone in Two Seconds and Thrashing. I'm afraid to ask where the Apple ranks on your list. Uh, so Firestarter is like one of the lowest, like this movie is actually good, not so bad it's good movies, like Rad or Viva Knievel. Um the the remake is number sixty-five of sixty-five. Okay. Uh, wow. Which means I think it is worse than Jim Cotta. Uh, <laughs> it is worse than the Apple. I would rather and, watch either of those movies. And it is worse than joysticks. Oh, I, I That's love joysticks. a tough road to hoe, I might agree. Have I, have I told you that I've seen joysticks in the cinema yes, <laughs> on the big screen? <laughs> uh, Alex, also, Alex, um, this will be relevant to you. I think it's, I have seen too much. The Canon film that you recently showed. Oh, me. the robot movie. Yes. So that is impossible to find. I had a friend find a pirated copy off Dutch television. Um, wow. <laughs> too much is 58 on my list. So Jesus, which which means it's better than the taking of Beverly Hill starring Ken Wall, but Whew. it is worse than Perfect starring John Travolta and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. The, the VHX bo- VHS box art for too much like blew my mind. I was like, yeah, what Alex, if you, ever, if you ever need to see some real shit, I'll let me know and I'll give you a copy of Too Much. Everybody listening, go ahead, Alex. Go ahead. I, I was I I might need to take you up on that because okay. ever since people were picking apart that that canon reel that we showed, like I there's some stuff and I'm like, you know what? I should I should watch Fifty Two Pickup at some point because I thought that movie didn't get made, but apparently it did. No, that got made. My my dad liked that movie. Um, uh, too much got made barely, and that movie is. So everybody um, on on Nextlander, you guys did what, what was that called? The VHS what stream? What was it? I I, I just called it VHSOS because I needed yes. some kind of like name for those things, and that's what I I came up with in about five seconds. And how did that open up with the Canon the Canon sizzle reel? Yeah, the Canon video is the, is the first thing on there. And one of, and it's just a bunch of like Billy trailers, like the exhibitor trailers. And one yeah, of them it's is the, it's the it's the videos they use to pitch 
their slate at at, can, at con and like they would put these rail, reels together for movies that they had not even started production on because they just wanted to sell the rights while they could yes but they made too much that, that is directed by the director of the story of O. by the way um what <laughs> oh my god what year, oh what year was too much Eight, too much is 1987 hey if, wow. if either of you if anyone listening is interested in, in too much i did an episode on it it's a bad movie but on that note i believe it <laughs> yeah uh thank you both for doing this i really appreciate it um i'm glad we were able to find each other today because twitter died so that was nice um but well, thank, uh, you for li- thank you for inspiring me to revisit the original great enjoyable firestarter film yes. from the 80s and experience the, one of the worst Stephen king adaptations i've ever seen and everybody if you want to hear shane talk about stephen king more where can where can they do that shane oh i was recently on an episode of the popular video game podcast retronauts about uh, stephen king's influence on video games check yes. that out yeah. And if Twitter still exists when I release this episode, where can they find you on yeah. Twitter? Uh, occasionally when it's up, you can find me on the, on the dying platform of Twitter at Shane Watch, all one word. Yes. And where can they find you, Alex? Uh, if, if Twitter still breathes, I am Alex <laughs> underscore Navarro uh, on the Twitter. Uh, Nextlander is the, the thing I do, What where the podcasts and the videos happen. Most of it's about video games. The Watchcast is not. Check it out. Yeah, you did. You're doing um, what '90s techno thrillers this month? Goofy action sci-fi of the '90s is the thing I wrote down. And our films this month are Virtuosity, Demolition Man, Free Jack, and Johnny Mnemonic. Fucking Free Jack! I, I need to watch Free Jack. I've always meant to. I've never watched it. Is is uh the villain played by like Keith Richards or something? Who's Big, Big Jagger? Mick Jagger, I was close. I need to watch this movie. Yeah, he, he drives I, I, around in a shitty little Cobra tank through most of the movie. It's amazing. Um, oh if God. you ever revisit crap '90s techno thrillers, I highly recommend either Man's Best Friend with uh, Lance Henriksen and a robot dog, okay, or, or <laughs> Ghost, in, Ghost in the Machine. I know which... Ghost in the Machine. I don't yeah, know that in, other. Who's one. in that? Is, is Edward Furlong in Ghost in the Machine? No, that's some, no, I that's, he's in that's another movie. Ghost in the I Machine rec- has um Karen Allen is in that. Oh. Uh, that's right. Karen Allen and uh no one else. Oh, Jessica Walters in it. Okay, so there is one other person in it. Yeah, yeah. And uh that's a bad movie. Man's best friend that has uh Lance Hendrickson, a robot dog, and Ali Sheedy. Oh, I sold. And although Alex, that has some pretty vile cat violence. That's FYI. <laughs> okay, I'll keep that in mind. But it's very Wait, bad it, looking. It, it's a very bad thing. The dog eats a robot. The, the robot dog eats a cat. Oh, okay. Wow. But like Ibo, in one bad, bad but in, Ibo. One, in one gulp. <laughs> so, oh. you, liked it when, you thought it was funny when Alf did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and and anyway, uh. You can find. Did you say where you can find you on Twitter, Alex? Yes, I did. Okay, it's in there. You can find it. You can find. Yeah, you can find. And anybody, you can find me on everything as Lost Turntable. I'm also using Letterbox a lot more now. I plan on writing short reviews for every movie I've seen this year. So nice. Uh, as of right now, that is 55 movies. <laughs> so God damn, it's only February. I had the flu. Um. So I I watched five movies. Of, Two days in a, like, I watched ten movies in two days. Wow! Okay, because I wasn't yeah. leaving. Jealous. So you know, I watched I watched School Girls and Chains. Great film. Anyway, uh, I, I'm a bad person. Anyway, thank you everyone for, <laughs> for doing this. I appreciate it. 
Uh, oh, well, 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 I'm sorry. One, one more thing, really quick. The schedules for this this episode is coming is going online on the 16th. Everybody, so when you're listening to this, the one after that, I do not know because that is the same day I will have surgery. So good luck. Um, good luck with that, man. I'll be yeah, fine. I wish you all the best. Yes, not a major surgery, but I, so this might be the only episode to everyone listening this month. I'll be back again soon. The next episode will be with me and Diamond Fight is returning. They will be coming to talk about Q the Winged Serpent. Oh my god, that fucking movie. It rules. I haven't seen that since I was a kid. I need I need to watch that again. Yeah, that I may need to revisit that. That shit fucking rules. But anyway, until then, <laughs> I'll see ya. That take ya. Bye.